and welcome to another DBSA Romance Fiction Podcast. I'm Sarah Wendell from Smart Bitches Trashy Books, and with me is Jane Litt from DearAuthor.com. This week, we're taking a look at our email from listeners and answering questions about which are the very best werewolf books, pack dynamics, which one of us has happy drunks, and we're going to talk at length about the discomfort zone and cultish legs. You've all read books with heroines with cultish legs. It's time we took a real look at what that means. You were thinking, this sounds like the Peat Bog Fairies. You're right. It is the Peat Bog Fairies. This is a new track from their new album. I'll have all the information at the end of the podcast so you can go and download it. Unless you already bought the whole album, in which case you think, oh, I know this song. And now, on with the podcast. So I'm glad that we have reader mail. I was going to ask you about that. We do have reader mail, and it's awesome. The first email is from B, as in boy, but I don't think this is a boy, but I don't want to use people's real names because, you know, that would be kind of rude. Anyway, so B says, I also love books about werewolves and shifters. In all your spare time, hearty har har, would you consider making a list of those you've read and recommend for us? Or if this already exists somewhere, could you tell me where to find it? So I want to ask you, because I know you just read Raised by Wolves by Jennifer Lynn Barnes. What are your favorite werewolf shifter romances? Well, I like the Patricia Briggs series. Um, She has two series, the Mercy Thompson series, and then a spinoff featuring two characters named Charles and Anna. The Charles and Anna series, I think, is more romantic focuses more on the relationship between Charles and Anna. Anna is a special kind of werewolf. She's called an Omega werewolf. And Charles is the enforcer for the North American pack. Uh, He's the brother of Samuel, who is a character that appear is a recurring character in the Mercy Thompson series. Uh, My first love is Kelly Armstrong's bitten uh, followed by stolen Although I shouldn't have let is, you go first because you're going to name all the ones that I love and be like, well, um, yeah, what she said. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Bitten and, and followed by Stolen. The Armstrong uh, deviates from her werewolf books and goes off on a witch, demon, other being uh, course, which I didn't enjoy as much. For straight-up werewolves, Kinsey Holly, I think, is getting better. She's kind of an imperfect writer for me, but I like I like her voice. It's just sometimes the execution of her stories don't always work for me, but I think she's improving with every book. She's the one you, who writes the werewolves where you know that someone is your mate because they can make eye contact with you and, and not have to look away. I don't remember. I know that you and I read... Her first book, and we actually may have even talked about it on an early podcast or chat or something, because I remember that you and I discussed her first book, Yes, that we liked the idea of it, but neither of us were falling in love with the book. Yeah, I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, um, I'm pretty sure that I am, Her one of the motifs of her world was that the mate of the alpha hero, whichever alpha hero it was, would be able to make eye contact and not look away. And, or at least that was the motif in the first one. I don't know if I read the second one. 
but I do remember they had beautiful covers. Well, her first book came out, she's not a prolific writer. Um, I think her first book came out in like 2007 and then she's had a book like almost every other year. And they're not very long books, but I definitely see an improvement. You know, there's just not a ton of uh, werewolf books out there. That, And we talked about this on a previous podcast, and so I don't want to belabor the point, but I really enjoy werewolf books that talk about the pack structure. Mm-hmm. And I don't think enough books do that because the pack structure is what's interesting about the werewolf books for me. Otherwise, why not have just any other type of uh, paranormal character? I think there's something unique about the pack structure that sets werewolf books apart. And very few people employ the dynamics or explore even the dynamics beyond who's the alpha and who his mate is. I, uh, I can't even remember if I've talked about this on the podcast but I've been complaining about it privately to my friends via email. So, But there's this Katie Roos book that's coming out in the end of the month, and I know I emailed you about it, called Alpha Instinct. And I was really excited because it was a packed book, but it's so... Um, it's such an anti-feminist book, I could not stand it. Oh, no. I remember yeah. you emailing me about this one. Yes, there's these female werewolves. Most of them are beta, of course, because women are too weak to be alphas. And um, they run a ranch. And I can't recall uh, what hap- how it happened, but they lost all the males in their pack. And there's a female alpha. And it's like a given that they need a pack of male alphas to come in, not only take care of them physically, and protect them physically, but also because financially they can't run the ranch themselves. These are a bunch of female werewolves, right? What? They can't run the ranch? No, they're too they're too weak or something. Look, even the that meekest they of have our... to have this alpha male pack to come in and help them run the ranch and uh, be protected. And the alpha male pack that they uh, agree to merge with is all alpha, all warrior class alpha males. That's crazy. I know. I, it's just terrible. Even I, the meekest of Honora Roberts heroine can run a ranch. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Yeah, I... You know, I I think we've talked about this before. I have a real problem in paranormals making the women so weak. I mean, what's the point? You can make women whatever you want in these books. Right. They can be extremely strong. Correct. And and uh, they don't. I mean, this book, <laughs> it was really frustrating for me to read. Well, the thing I like about werewolf pack structure is that I think it says a lot about human family dynamic because in wolf pack structure like actual wolves you know living in actual nature there are rules and there are there's a structure of power and there's a structure of um influence and ability and it says a lot about human family where we have this allegedly more powerful um brain and 
the ability to make decisions in a different way, yet wolves often have a more functional family dynamic than we do. While some people really dislike the dominant alpha, I, I'm fascinated by what happens underneath the alpha. I mean, not literally under the alpha, like in the sense of the pack, not like under him in the bed. Um, I'm fascinated by what happens within the pack after you've identified who the alpha is. I have a real problem with these books where everyone's an alpha. Like that would not work. I love everything that you've said. I love the Charles and Anna series. That that series is seriously dangerous. If I pick up the Charles and Anna series, I will keep reading it and I will forget to go back to whatever, whatever it was I was reading. I will forget to go back to it. I love those books. I have a thing for Werewolf YA. I like it a lot, particularly because... YA already focuses on how overwhelming and huge emotions are and how scary they are and, and, and everything from arousal to physical changes to emotional, emotional development happens in this short time span. And then when you throw, you know, werewolfiness on top of that, that's even more crap to deal with. And that's terrifying. But the other thing I like, and I know you're not as much of a fan of it, is I love Shelley Lorenston's series. I friggin' love these books. And I know I've talked about them before, so I won't go on at length, but I love the campy, silly violence. I love the fact that they are silly and that her characters live in trailers and they are openly describing themselves as rednecks and that the, and that the women are violent. And if there's a female alpha, she will do horribly violent things to maintain her status. And I, I just love those books for how different they are and how silly they are. But I also know that there are a lot of readers who don't like them because they are so campy and silly. But I, I don't see Shelley Lawrenson as writing pack books, just like I don't really see Nalini Singh writing pack books. I mean, even though part of her books are about a werewolf and, and a werewolf pack, the overwhelming uh, movement of that series is more about the uh, arc, uh, story arc between the, the uh, fall of the Psy and, and the changeling. And, and similarly... I don't think the focus in the Lawrence and books are pack books. So no. while she has changelings in her stories, I don't like if people ask me, will you, you, what would you recommend for a werewolf book? There, neither of those are books that I'm going to recommend. They're definitely not pack books because like you said, each book focuses on a couple and then you'll see that couple later. But for example, in the Lawrenceton books, when you see the the couples from previous books, they're all over at somebody's house watching TV or something, or they're caring for each other's kids. There's no real extended time with this pack all living together. The only one that I've read, which I'm going to have to look up, is the one with the wild dog pack. And they all live in a building together, and they all run a business together. And there's a lot of pack dynamic in that book. Um and I want to say that she hooks up with a lion. That's the other thing about the Shelley Lawrenston books. They really blend together in my brain, and I cannot remember one to the other. The characters are distinct, but the plots run together in my mind so that I can't remember which one had what happening to it. And I can remember scenes, but I can't remember which book it was. That's kind of the story of my life, though. I don't know that they're so different from book to book. I think part of the problem you have with uh, distinguishing them is because the characters are kind of repetitive. But... Um... They are entertaining. Oh, uh, they're so entertaining to me. And her dragon series entertained the crap out of me. I think really good world building is when you can't take the story out of the setting without it having been irre irre irrevocably changed. 
Like you can, I don't think you can take uh, M- Mel Jean Brooks characters in the Iron Duke and the plot there and set it in another historical time period or a contemporary and have the same dynamic. That's part of the problem with uh, rewriting, um, you know, Jane Austen stories in a contemporary format. These characters that she depicted are influenced by their time period, the societal and um, legal and political constraints of the time. So Laurenston's books, however, I think you could easily take out of their world, set them in some, you know, rural setting, and you'd have no different dynamic. I see what you're saying. This email is from Liz, who says, Dear Ladies, I'm loving the podcast, and I'm sorry you're having the technical difficulties. By the way, those are all my fault. Jane has nothing to do with the technical difficulties. They are all my fault. But I'm working on it. Um, On a side note, I want to mention that I discovered your podcast, while my favorite podcast, More Hip Than Hippie, was on a three-month sabbatical. There's something about your spirit and tone that reminds me of those ladies, though they rate beer while doing the podcast, and perhaps that's something to consider. I am totally okay with rating alcohol while we while we podcast. And I think that drinking while we record would make for much better podcasts, at least for the last half hour when we're both for schnickered. Oh, but you know, I am such a lightweight Sarah and I say embarrassing things. When I'm drunk. <laughs> yes, that would be, that would be why it would be awesome. Um, <laughs> you know, I randomly burst out into song. You go off on a rant about authors on Goodreads. It'll be awesome. I, I thought you said I was a happy drunk. You are a happy drunk. Actually. I am. I stand corrected. You are a very happy drunk. It's kind of awesome. Anyway, this is Liz. I just read yet another book where the heroine's legs are described as cultish. This was The Bride Wore Scarlet by Liz Carlyle. WTF. My dictionary tells me that cultish means like a cult, which is an uncastrated male horse under the age of four. How does looking like that make a woman's legs attractive? I don't know if this falls under the definition of a cliche because I've never encountered the phrase outside of a romance novel, but it gets used again and again. Why do some authors latch onto these weird descriptions that don't seem grounded in reality? And apologies if you've covered this question but I, but recently, but I missed it. Oh, no. There's no shortage to the amount of cliche we could talk about, Liz. I, I don't understand. I don't think cultish is a, good, is a good look. Do you want heroines with knobby knees who can't stand up very well? Well, I'm sure someone like Jude Devereaux used it back in the 70s or 80s, and then (laughs) everyone adopted it, kind of like the tiny hands description or the, um, or the, uh, uh, the uh, faux Scottish dialect. The faux Scottish dialect, the heroine who is a redhead but barely has any freckles, um, or if she has a smattering of freckles, they're on her nose and they're only visible to the hero. They're like magical disappearing, reappearing freckles. And of course he finds them charming. Um, the small hands, the cultish legs, the eyebrows like wings, always like wings. <laughs> what are they going to fly off her head? of a good plucking. Yeah. I mean, I want, I, want, I want reality in my heroines. I want heroines with an eyebrow like a caterpillar. Come on now. All right, here I, I I typed in cultish into Google Books. Don't you love doing that? Oh no! 
please tell me it's like 14 billion books and they're all romances. Well, no, the, the first romance is from Loose Ends by Tara Jansen. And the dialogue goes like this. So what did he mean by cultish? Long <laughs> legs, a little on the skinny side and fast as hell. Okay. Well, I guess if she's running, that's a useful thing. I hope it's a romantic suspense. It was a romantic suspense. You just got to run away from the bad guys then. Come on. But then there's the dictionary definition. Hold on. I got to read this. In a cultish manner, wantonly. What? So Since maybe, when did four-year-old uncastrated horses beha- behave wantonly? I don't know, but maybe it means that the women with cultish legs are easy. Like, they spread open um, very easily. Or like it, when you're sitting next to her, all of a sudden her foot is running up your calf. <laughs> hey, baby. <laughs> From now on, cult... Okay, so frisky... To frisk a cult is to frisk about or to frolic about. So maybe they're, t- see, I'm, I'm thinking that cultish means easy lay. <laughs> That's not good. That's not what you want. You don't want so an easy lay. You see a hero saying that the woman's got, that the heroine's got cultish legs. Really, he's saying to himself, I bet she's an easy lay. That chick's a hoe. I like yeah. her. We're going to score. <laughs> Oh my gosh. That's so that's you, something I'm way tired of cultish legs. So you uh wrote a post about where the hymen is. Oh my is god. Hymen. Yes. So my question is, because I think everything like that needs a name. We have historical, yes. contemporaneous. What's the name for books that have the hymen halfway up the vagina? Ooh. Maybe something blending hymen and location. Well, hymencation makes it sound like it went on vacation. Hymencation. (laughs) My hymen went to Florida. It traveled up the channel and stopped halfway due to, what, logistics, financial concerns. Ran out of money. The flight got canceled. There totally does need to be a name. Maybe we should offer a prize to anyone who can name the hymen mislocation syndrome. Oh, I like that. Let's let's, let's give them a copy of, um, let's see, uh... Agony and Ecstasy, edited by some random person named Jane Litt. We can give a copy of that. And I'll throw in a copy of my book because, hey, I have some of those. And I'll, I'll throw in five mixed romance novels. All right. Whoever can come up with the best name for when the hymen is wrongly located halfway up the vagina, you will win five random romance novels, Agony and Ecstasy, and everything I know about love I learned from romance novels. Jane, by the way, if you edit another book, your titles need to be longer. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I'm feeling, you know, like I feel like I'm very turgid in your little flaccid there in the title length. All no, you have to do... I think it's more I think it's more uh uh emblematic of our email oh. conversation. <laughs> yeah, where I'm I ramble on and you're like no. I'm just terse. <laughs> Yes, Jane, very terse. Agony, ecstasy, there's sex. Moving on. <laughs> All right, I have another cultist definition to read from. Oh, please it's, do. It's from um, You May Kill the Bride. Oh. Ms. Doyle was what they used to call cultish, not just her frisky, long-limbed movements, but also her large, protruding brown eyes and the yard-long mane of brown hair that she sporadically flung aside with restless little tosses of her head. Even her mouth had an equine look, its short upper lip revealing strong, square white teeth. Definitely coltish. Holy crap, she's a horse. <laughs> so, <laughs> How is that a good thing? Definitely not sexy. 
Yeah, any minute now she's gonna open her mouth and go, <laughs> Good God. So if you wanna if you wanna enter the Where's the Hymen contest, you can email us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com with your suggestion for what to call it when the when the hymen is in the wrong place. All right, so I have another cultish. This is from Brenda Joyce. That's gonna be the title of this podcast, by the way. Cultish. <laughs> this is Lovers and Liars by Brenda Joyce. Uh-huh. I guess I don't know what page it's on. Um, Jack never had never made a pass at her in all the years she had known him. She knew he never would. In the beginning, it was because she wasn't his type. Diana was his type, a 19-year-old model with a nothing figure. No breasts, no ass, no thighs, nothing. Tall, cultish, a br- perfect, breathtaking face. Lots and lots of brown hair, so dark it was almost black. Blue eyes, black lashes, one of a million cultish brunettes that Jack took to bed. What? Yeah. There's millions of them out there oh galloping around <laughs> with their long mane of brown hair. And big teeth. Don't forget the big teeth. You think um, maybe we can um, corral them all into one, like, one area so we know which heroines are cultish? Because I'm going to start marking books with a tag. If I read a book and the hymen is in the wrong place, I'm going to start marking them with a tag and, um, you know, collect them all. Like in this book, the hymen is halfway up the valley. Maybe we should connect. We should uh, start tagging all the cultish heroines. A little picture of a horse. This is a corral book. (laughs) Yeehaw. It's a whole other kind of Western when the heroine is cultish. She doesn't even have to be in the rural West where there's cowboys. She could just, you know, be cultish with her teeth. <laughs> it's so wrong. All right. So what, what else is in the mailbag? All right. Hang on. Let's see. Dear smart authors, if I don't read a different type of romance book, I'm going to have a freak out. Oh, we don't want that. I'm basically on the verge of burning out on romantic suspense. So I'm asking or pleading and begging for some romances that are either historical in nature or romances that are tear jerkers. Don't get me wrong. I love romantic suspense, but it seems to me all my audiobooks or books, my regular books have romantic suspense themes to them. So any books you guys recommend needs, and I mean needs be different. I'm close to not liking romantic suspense. and they're <coughs> Excuse me. I'm close to not liking romantic suspense, and they're getting to be fairly predictable. Thanks for your time, Lisa. Okay, well, historicals would be a really long list, but I think we could do historical tear jerkers. Hmm. Historical tear jerkers. I okay. guess ma- Elizabeth Hoyt. Elizabeth Hoyt always makes me cry, especially because there's always one line in an Elizabeth Hoyt novel where, where. I, I will lose it. Like I, there's always one line where it's like, bam, right in the heart. Like there was the, I think it was the Raven Prince. The hero is talking about how he is the disgraced bastard of the local Lord. And it was because his mother cheated on his father and he loved his father very much. And the heroine says, well, you know, did you hate your mother? And he looks at her and he says, little boys always love their mothers. And because I have little boys that just got me. Right in the squishy internal organs. Laura Kinsale can make me cry, particularly, um, God, what's the flowers from the storm? There are scenes that are just incredibly touching. The hero is a wastrel piece of social dung who really doesn't care what anyone thinks of him. 
until he has a massive stroke and he ends up being cared for by a young Quaker woman at a time when Quakers were considered socially outcast and quite different and very odd. There's a scene where the hero is still learning to talk again and he's with a bunch of men and they all adapt their speech patterns to talk like him so that everyone can talk the same. And it's so simple and touching and there's a lot of little pieces like that that made me cry. Um, I'm trying to think. There was another book that totally made me ball, and I cannot remember what it was. It might have been... Oh, I'm, I'm having one of those moments where I can picture the cover, and I can't remember. It was yellow, and it had a castle on it. That doesn't help me. I'm I'm the patron that librarians hate. Judith McNaught uh, is... Oh. I mean... I I have to say that none of these historicals have ever made me cry. I've only cried maybe a couple times. I think it was because I was pregnant. Um, <laughs> well, you're not a big crier. No. So, I'll cry but, at a Johnson & Johnson commercial, pregnant or not. Yeah, pregnancy brought on the tears, but I've tried to beat that back. Um, <laughs> I think Judith McNaught's books are emotional tear jerkers. I, I definitely would put those in the, that category. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Some older Patricia Gaffney books I put in that category. Uh, I read a contemporary from, I believe it's Karina Press by Liz Flaherty, Flaherty, Flattery, something called uh, More Than Summer, I think. And that was a pretty morose book. That would be One More Summer? Yeah. One More Summer by Liz Flaherty. There was another Karina Press book that I was actually scared to read and I had to tell the author that I that I didn't think I could handle it um the Inez Kelly book where the hero is an author and I think it's sweet as sin the hero is a YA author who writes about monsters and what he's doing is writing his writing about his abuse that he suffered as a child and recasting the abusers as monsters in another world in YA literature and Everyone was telling me how just incredibly painful and and real the emotions were. And I was so curious, but I I couldn't read it because I was too scared of how upset I would be at the oh, idea. Yeah, I read it and I, I'm probably the only one that didn't like this book, but I thought it was overwrought emotionally. And um, there were so many conflicts going on. It wasn't just the guy's conflict with his past. He had a there were 20 other conflicts in that story. I think it would have been more powerful if she had focused on one or two issues, but she had like, you know, every time you turned a page, a new issue had been brought up. And none of those issues, because there were so many of them for me, were resolved very satisfactor- satisfactorily. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, it was very popular. It wasn't for me. Yeah, everyone that I when that book came out, so many people on Twitter were talking about it. And I follow Inez Kelly because she's pretty funny on Twitter. Everyone was talking about this book when it came out. And I really wanted to read it because I like stories with emotional contact, deep emotional conflict. But I didn't think I could handle the abuse of a of a child because that would be a little too a little bit too close to my um, I guess you'd call it my discomfort zone. Some things I just I can't read about. That's why I avoid romantic suspense. I know I've said this before because all too often an author will throw in harm against a child as a way to instill dramatic tension. And I'm, I'm like, okay, we're, we're all done now. I can't read any more of this because nothing will ever get over that for me. Well, I didn't find that the um, 
the the scenes of his past were very graphic really maybe i will give it a try i have a pretty active imagination when it comes to the discomfort zone well then yeah <laughs> maybe the just the illusions will bother you yeah so what types of books get you emotionally like um, tortured heroes or um really impossible obstacles i mean what really gets you emotionally i'm sure it varies per the time period in which i'm reading it i, I, I mean i don't think that books affect me emotionally but that um my the, the circumstances during which you read that book can affect you emotionally. That's definitely true, especially whether or not you're pregnant. Right. I mean, I think the most touching emotional book I read was a, not a romance, but um, I guess it's a fiction. It's a collection of fiction stories called You Know When the Men Are Gone by Shiovan Fallon. It was a book, I think, published in hardcover last year. And uh, it was about a series of uh, essays representing individuals who lived at Fort Hood and who were military spouses or military men. And I think it really did a very good job of depicting um, the struggles and sacrifice of various service people. So if if I were to say that, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think historical romances uh, don't move me emotionally is because it's more fantasy whereas nonfiction or, or contemporary fiction has a greater chance of affecting me emotionally because it's more real. And what about you? you? I mean, obviously you cry at everything, but ha, ha, ha. more than others. I was actually just thinking, you know, there's a whole slew of reviews from on the site from 2005 and 2007 when I was pregnant where I talk about how whatever it was I was reading made me cry. And... <laughs> I think I probably got this reputation of being a bit of a crier. Being commu- being pregnant definitely made me cry while I was reading a lot. The things that probably get me emotionally are, like you said, most mostly contemporary because I believe that they could happen. Whereas with historicals, my my tolerance of historical inaccuracy is very high. I just don't get worked up about it. And I know we've talked about this. But because of that, I just sort of take all of it as a very distant um fantasy like you said and while the, the the characters can get to me i won't necessarily cry with the exception of elizabeth hoyt who makes me cry damn it um oh and anna campbell she writes the romanced lots and lots of romanced and sometimes i get really angry at her heroes because they are so bullheaded and and, and content to wallow in their misery at times but what always gets me is real emotional pain for a justifiable reason. All too often, like, do you remember when you were talking about how there's this great, huge exaggeration in so many romances? No one's parents just, we don't have one parent die. Both parents die in a tragic accident and leave them an orphan raised by wolves and living in a yurt in, you know, yellow knife in the snow. Like, you, if you're going to have something bad happen, it's going to be horrible. That doesn't get me as much as one parent dying and having a really difficult outcome because of that and having someone struggle with it realistically for a long time. If you put that in any historical setting, I'm going to have a much easier time engaging my emotions and my sympathy. So if there's a lack of exaggeration and it's a real justifiable emotional pain, I will probably cry.
Kim wrote in asking for us to summarize some of our best of, worst of, and we've covered a lot of that online, but one thing Kim asked was, who do we think is the most improved author? I, I think one of the most improved authors I've ever read is Lisa Claypass. Really? Yeah, I do. I think if you look back at her early works, I mean, she's always had a great voice, but I think her technical skills have really blo- um, grown and uh, she's become a really excellent writer uh, to ma- to match her. I think her prose matches her voice. So did you read Rain Shadow Road? I did read Rain Shadow Road. But I've been reading Lisa Claypass for a long time. I mean, she's been writing since, what, the early 90s? So we're talking. She has a lot of books. Yeah, she's been writing for 20 years. And I just think that she's really grown as an author. I love that she sort of started out very conventional and then got then got brave. Like her heroines were going to cross class lines and her heroes were going to be members of, of um, the Bow Street Runners or Scotland Yard. And that there were going to be class differences that were real and that she was going to explore what that meant for the care for the characters. I thought that was incredibly well done of her, especially with the first wallflower book. What did you think of rain shadow road? Well, I mean, I think that the magical realism to the story was unimportant. Like I, I don't, I don't feel like it added anything to the story it it wouldn't have changed the story at all if it was removed. If anything, I think it it adds some coherency problems. Like, does everybody have a magical ability? What's the point of including magical realism? Uh, is it only the character she writes about that has this kind of extrasensory uh, development? But from a straight contemporary romance point of view, I thought it was a lovely story. I really liked the romance between the characters, and I thought they fit together very well. I also liked that the child in question was not too precocious and too adorable. She wasn't so much of a plot moppet. The The magical realism to me felt like an ornament that didn't that wasn't fully explained. Like, why did glass become animals? What did that mean? And what was the significance of the animals they turned into? What did that mean? There there wasn't enough curiosity on the part of the characters as to why this was happening for them. What is Claypass trying to say in this story about magical realism? That only the truly gifted that the that the truly gifted have a special uh uh talent given to them by some higher being and that's what separates a gifted artist from a regular artist is mm-hmm. she saying that everyone has this innate uh extrasensory uh gift but that only certain people are receptive to it i mean she just didn't explore the idea or concept of ma- magical realism sufficient for me to make it integral to the story. Right. It felt like an ornament, like it was hung off the side and it didn't, you're exactly right. It didn't integrate well enough that I understood why it was there. Right. And you could take that out and you'd have the same exact story. Yes. You would no have a difference. perfectly good contemporary romance without it. Right. Because there's nothing about their abilities that actually impact the way they live. Right. Uh, how they interact with other people, what kind of decisions they make. Uh, it's like that, you know, the word ornamental is a great, it's a wallpaper magical realism. <laughs> Anyone who enjoys contemporary romances will enjoy this story. 
I think so. I think that the book will have a big audience, especially because with or without those flaws of integration, it's really charming. A very charming. It is like a very said, charming book. Like I want to go visit this place. The the characters are very likable, which I appreciate because I'm, you know, up to my chin with asshole characters. I'm really tired of that. Yes, rehabilitation of the assholes getting or getting old. So I really enjoyed reading about these two individuals who are nice people who just weren't ready for a relationship, but were drawn to each other nonetheless. And I thought that the Sexual tension was really wonderful uh, when he's taking care of uh, the, the heroine hurts herself mm-hmm. and uh, she goes to live at the hero's house uh, and the hero lives with his brother and they both take care of their uh, dead sister's daughter. And in the, in, you know, the, the, the little girl, have you read uh, Christmas at Christmas Eve at Friday Harbor? Yes. No, I have not. Did you? Yes. So I think you should read that. Does it also have magical realism? Uh, No. But it's the story of uh, his other brother, his older brother. Right. His romance. And uh, the the little girl, their responsibility for that little girl changes these two men in, in ways that they would not have anticipated because they become, you know, parents. And um, Clapus would be very good at that. That changes them. That that's what changes them, not magic. <laughs> and I just thought that the the so slow growth of their romance and the tension uh, was really well done. And I'd lo- like to see more romances like that. Not necessarily with magic, uh-huh. but but more romances about decent people and uh, growing together over time. And there was a lot of sexual tension in the story from the very, very beginning. That's excellent. I love, I love books like that. And that's all for this week's podcast. I'm so glad you joined us to listen. Future editions will include interviews, mayhem, whatever we feel like talking about, because, you know, that's how we roll. If you've got suggestions or ideas or compliments, hey, we like compliments. You can reach us at sbjpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at smartbitchestrashybooks.com or on Twitter at smartbitches. And you can find Jane at Dear Author or at Jane underscore L. The music this week is from the Peat Bog Fairies. It's from their new album, Dust, and is a track called Room 215. It was provided by Sassy Outwater, as usual. You can find Sassy Outwater at twitter.com slash sassyoutwater. And that's all for this week. So I wish you the very best of reading. <laughs>